Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is ad-free and supported entirely by teammates like Nick Rumizik. Callie, Anne F., William Wood, Paco Xander, Nathan, and Ron Ecstasy. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to get access to our Discord, free links to my paywalled medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and lots of other team-only perks, including our monthly live Team Human salons. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to liberate ourselves from the American dream of individual success and celebrate the waking joy of mutuality, collaboration, and shared prosperity. Why start up an exit when you can experience perpetual rebirth? I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Executive Director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, Alyssa Court. If we're going back to the bootstrap vision, though, it's one of collective effort. It's one of mutual aids. It's one of all these kind of alternative community activity. And also, I think it's it's a narrative change, too. Alyssa will be helping us dispel the myth of the self-made man once and for all, so we can get on with co-creating a story of mutual and sustainable futures. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Well, hey, I hope you're all doing well. I'm just uh, back from South by Southwest, where I had a really good time, actually. I, I don't usually love conferences, but I tend to show up at South by Southwest always like right before or during a major shock to the tech industry. I was there in, you know, 99, right before the dot-com crash, telling them the dot-com boom's gonna gonna crash. And then I was there in uh, 2006 or seven, telling them about the mortgage crisis was gonna crash. And people were just laughing like it was funny. But this time I was there during the weekend between the moment that Silicon Valley Bank went under and the Monday morning when Biden said he was going to bail out the depositors. So it was this moment of real, real panic. I mean, and at the same time, Everybody was anticipating the the launch of GPT-4, which is the one that's going to make GPT-3 look like a look like a little baby compared to this super intelligence and then the terminator moment will happen and so everybody was in this state and um it was really funny because just the week before I had been at a party of rich people for lack of a better word 
And one of them was this dude who I knew from really back in the in the day, back in the late 90s when the net was about something entirely different, a fellow uh, writer and artist thinker person, you know, one of the counterculture who was now running a venture fund. And I was like, oh, a venture fund? Is that, you know, like a hedge fund where you uh, invest in stocks and stuff? And he's like, no, it was a hedge fund is in the public markets. A venture fund is in the private markets. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, trying, I'm sorry if I insulted you. I'm saying it's just stocks. It's special stocks, right? Series A's and series B's. And for all my supposed sophistication in tech and economics and all, I know, I'm like a little country doctor when it comes to the actual terms that these folks are using. So, I asked like really simple questions to try to find out what the person actually did. And it turns out he had raised, he was all happy because he had just raised $250 million to fund the venture fund and start deploying investment. And I was like, wow, $250 million? And not to be facetious, but I was kind of asking, it sounded silly, but I meant it. Just like, where do you keep? $250 million while you're waiting to invest it. And he said, oh, well, there's this special bank that we use. It's not like Goldman or Chase. There's a special bank just for this called Silicon Valley Bank. And honestly, I had never heard the words before. I'd never heard of Silicon Valley Bank before that moment a week and a half ago. And sure enough, Silicon Valley Bank, for those of you who haven't heard, this giant, um, you know, West Coast-based bank for venture capitalists to use and startups and all, it ran out of money. And it was, you know, stupid reasons. It ran out of money. We can we can get into why this happened. They, they made some mistakes, but the real mistake they made was when they were raising capital to make sure that their, you know that their bank was being responsible, right? It's always the scene of the crime. When they went to raise capital to make their balance sheet better, they communicated it to their shareholders, to the people who had stock in their bank. And they did it through these official channels and they called it an 8K and an Edgar, but they didn't say anything at all to their depositors, to the people who had money in the bank, to the customers, to us, and what they didn't realize is that in a digital age today, you know, Twitter is going to spread a lot faster than some official bank communications through publicists about what is going on. And some of the shareholder types who saw the Edgar report in the 8K, people like Peter Thiel, ended up calling all their companies, the thousands of startup companies that they invest in with. Uh, Peter Thiel has this thing called the Founders Fund, said, hey, dudes, we just saw this thing. Not sure what it means, but it's probably smart to get your money out of there. And then they go tweet the thing, right? And in addition to this, it turns out the owners of the bank, like the head um, executives of the bank, the top three executives, they had sold like 30, 40% of their shares before making the announcement about them needing to go out and raise more money. So it's like, those are really scary things. So when word of that gets out before any communication to customers about what the heck is going on here, of course, everybody starts pulling their money from that bank, right? They were completely unaware of how the speed of information works and what a bank even is. So yeah, everybody yanked their money out of that thing. And I got to give my talk right between the time that Silicon Valley Bank crashed and the Monday morning later when Biden and the Fed decided to bail out all the investors in the bank. So by the rules of banking, only 250000 of that $250 million was actually safe. The other $249,750,000, as far as that moment, was toast. And I was in a room with 
gosh, like a thousand people showed up for this talk and a whole bunch of them were people who were directly impacted by this bank freezing, basically freezing its its deposits and people not being able to know if they're going to be able to pay payroll. People were, were already um, letting people opt their, their, their staffs because they weren't going to be able to pay them. And it was a scary moment. And here I am doing a talk that's sort of like the last talk of my survival of the richest book. And I called it the end of the billion mindset, a celebration. And I had meant it as like the end that the book succeeded. And a lot of people now realize that the dream of, of escaping to Mars or a bunker or uploading your, your consciousness to a silicon chip, that none of that stuff is wise or, or desirable. And we want to kind of figure out how to have a sustainable, joyful future again together here. Um, so I was a little gentle, but boy, it was a great, it was a great moment to be like, you see, we all see this is bullshit. Let's do something different and better and more pro-human. And to have so many friends in the audience, friends I really respect, uh, you know, from, from Philip Rosedale was there. Chelsea Manning was there. John Lipkowski was there. I mean, some of them are guests. Some of them are just heroes. Um, but to be there together, celebrating the fact that that we've reached a critical mass, that more people understand the silliness and paucity of the, the billionaire mindset and are ready to try on different ways of seeing the world that depend more on mutuality and community and fun and ecstatic experience and opening up to each other and engendering and cultivating the sorts of awe that make us feel one with everything rather than being afraid that we need to somehow separate from the rest of humanity in order to survive the coming crises, that felt great. I genuinely believe the tide is turning. We've, we've, we've reached peak billionaire mindset and a new wave is coming in. And we here on Team Human, I promise you, we are in the right place at the right time to get this new party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I was delighted to have the opportunity to engage with Alyssa Court this week. She's an old friend since at least the last financial crisis and the Occupy movement. She was on Team Human about five years ago, episode number 101, which we called It's Not Your Fault, exploring the precarity of economic life in America and how the poor get blamed for their own predicaments. She's really good at grounding what so many of us are seeing and feeling in both real economic data and the foundational linchpins of American culture. Plus, she's just very much one of us. So here's my friend and conspirator, Alyssa Court. So hi, Alyssa. First, thanks so much for doing this. I know it's a busy moment. You're welcome, Mr. Rushkoff. <laughs> I'm like so happy to be hanging out with you. We were just about to start doing our word salad where we would make new coinages around business language. Which I think is, should be our careers for the rest 
of our lives. So bootstrapped is your book, but bootstrapping is a Silicon Valley term for almost the opposite of what bootstrapped is in your book, right? So bootstrapping, I mean, for Silicon Valley, when they look at a business that is self-funded, in other words, self-funded in the in the good old traditional way you start a business, like I'm going to take what money I have, buy some equipment, make candles, sell the candles for a profit, use some of the profit to live on, use some of the profit to like get more candle making supplies and maybe hire a fellow candle maker and slowly grow my business in that organic way. Silicon Valley people, they call that bootstrapping Mm -hmm. as if it's this magical act that Baron von Munchausen could literally lift himself up by its own bootstraps as if that's some magical, stupid, ridiculous, impossible thing where what they're doing is the impossible thing. I'm going to take $1 and turn it into a trillion dollars with a magical piece of technology. But in your book, Bootstrapping or Boot to be Bootstrapped is this kind of almost early American self-made man, Thoreau Whitman-like little engine that could energy, right? Yeah, exactly. And then how that somehow became, you know, Elon Musk and became the ideology that we see today with the the tech titans. So yeah, it's a, how did Walden, Thoreau living on Walden Pond, morph into this world of the hyper-rich that believe that they're deserving and they've gotten it all by themselves? So that's kind of the central mystery. Uh, And also, bootstrapped in the sense of people being kind of under the boot, right? So I think the metaphor of the boot Mm. is more floaty a little in that way, like who is being controlled by the self-made myth uh, and left out of the story. And then I try to address a teeny bit autobiographically that, you know, my grandparents owned a shoe store and they were sort of cobblers. So uh, when I was a child, I played with boots on on their floor. Oh my God, I did the same thing. Did you know that? No. My grandparents had a shoe store that their parents started, my grandmother's mother, on the Lower East Side. And I still have a shoe stretcher that the people oh. would come in. Oh, yeah, yeah. This wooden shoe. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. La- they're called lasts <laughs> and yeah. lasts. And then there was shoe horns and there was brushes and polish. I'd like it probably early, uh, you know, kind of fumes. Oh I-, my I love the smell God. of polish. We're from the great, the great cobblers of Eastern Europe. <laughs> no, this is, that's why I love you so. Oh my God. <laughs> but it's like, there's something about the materiality of the shoe. Do you like shoes? Are you like, not I love like shoes? I I love, was, they're in yeah. my blood. Yes. They're in my blood. But I don't love like sex and city kind of shoes. I like, no. like, like real leather, like the smell, well, the yeah. sodas, you know, boots, boots, boots. And I think it's not a uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Boots were incredibly important in the construction of America because in the 19th century, if you were working class, you had to pull on boots and that was pretty hard. And if you had more money, there were like machines, early industrial period machines that help people put them on, or you'd have servants put on your boots for you. But right. if you're a working man, you worked in boots and it was trouble. You had to pull up the, t- the tabs. So pulling yourself up by your bootstraps was like a metaphysical comic idea initially in the early, early part of the 19th century. And then like most American myths that start out as jokes, people take them super seriously. And they're like this, I'm going to do this thing that started out as like a surrealist exercise. So that, you know, in 1834, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps was a joke. And, you know, by the turn of the 20th century. It was what everybody was trying to do. Right. Some kind of Ayn Rand thing. And there's so many different ways I want to talk about that in terms of, of human beings. I mean, the thing that keeps coming to mind for me, and it sounds unrelated, but it's so not, is when my mom, who is a real new ager, when she got and was dying of cancer, and she read all the kind of new age stuff on how to heal yourself using one thing or another and how your own positive thinking affects your body and all that. And she kept feeling like her cancer was getting worse because she was not doing the right mindset. In other words, <laughs> she she wasn't if she was only a more positive thinker. So she took the blame. 
In yeah. other words, which is which to me, as I read your book, you talk about the poor and the way that this bootstrap mentality ends up. Well, if you're poor, it's your own damn fault. Yeah. And it's sort of that connection between being ill and especially women internalizing their illness, something that my beloved Barbara Ehrenreich wrote about, uh, the mm. author, and also that who wrote about that connection, really, uh, between sort of cancer culture, uh, kind of commercial cancer culture, saying pink ribbon your way through your cancer, right? And self-help literature telling your and lean in telling you know women to suck it up suck it up ask for that raise <laughs> when like it, ignoring structural limits on their power right uh and putting the blame on them which could only make all, all these things worse you know so yeah there's yeah. a huge connection and I, I i in my book i'm actually really pleased that i got into the problems of corporate mindfulness and also the value of therapy and kind of help that recognizes social class and um, structural failures. I, right. I call it I call it inequality therapy. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's my coinage, but yeah, because I felt like there our coinage, our word salad. We could start our inequality therapy yeah. institute. <laughs> you want to do it? No, we should. But yeah. then, but so I mean, it's a fun place to start. Almost rather than the structural is if we start with the people and our beliefs. I mean, and of course we have our we have these beliefs and underlying assumptions because we're stuck in these structures that we've mistaken for circumstances of nature, as we are, you know, want to do when you're raised in a world like this, you go, oh, yeah. that's just the way things are. But right. So, you know, uh, poor people and, and women in particular then end up feeling like, oh, if whatever unfortunate thing that's happening to me is my own fault. Mm-hmm. Right. And if, and if you just bootstrapped, you know, if you just picked yourself up, if you just had the fortitude, if you just had a little more good American ingenuity and common sense, and then, then you would be, then you would be just fine. And that creates such a dangerous and awful cognitive dissonance between my experience of life and whatever it is I'm seeing on the TV and what I'm being told about how things should be. Yeah. I mean, we're being told constantly one thing about how our lives are supposed to go. And then we we see another and that, that, that kind of narrative gap is something that interests me a lot. Right. I was going to say it was in the last one, you know, in the last one, which was really about how precarious life is for us. They told, if you go to college, you know, and do well and get, if I got A's in a good college, I should come out and my life's okay. Right. I think honestly, I had, I don't want to use the word trauma, but one of my kind of political reckonings was after I graduated college, all these people had all this money. And they were like buying their apartments and stuff. And I was like, what? You know, I I somehow didn't fully realize that I was part, I was like an unstable, economically lower middle class, culturally upper middle class, maybe. Let's just be, you know, sociologically. And that that was an incredible reckoning for me that I think has shaped shaped my life, like that gap. I remember that too. All my friends, not all my friends, but a lot of my friends graduated college and then they had like lofts in Williamsburg. And, and it's like, wait a minute, where did that, where did that come from? Yeah. You know, and it was finally, and it, you got to really dig and push and shove and ask a lot until they finally admit, well, I got this thing. It's called a trust fund. It's like, what's that? Who, no one trusted me, you know? <laughs> know right. Exactly. I, I'm tutoring kids on their SATs, you know? Oh yeah. Or like I was, rent. I was working on CD-ROMs, like getting out the, like deleting the corruptions from, oh, you know, beautiful. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Deleting the corruptions. It sounds like a poem itself. But yeah, it's it it more word salad. Yeah, We've got yeah, to add yeah. it to the list. Deleting the corruptions of CD ROMs, <laughs> CD ROMs, which were themselves corruptions. Yes, yeah. uh, but right. So then you realize, oh, they're right. There is this group of people that we may have gone to school with and gotten in great arguments with or done projects or with, and then in the ISO. <laughs> Right. You know, and you're like, what? Uh, and so that that that, that moment, and there, I mean, there are many moments of sort of narrative class reckoning in my life, and right. probably in yours too. Yeah, I'm always interested in that place, like the place where the person meets the economic and structural reality, like the family, where the where the adolescent. My first book, Branded, was about that, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens to their inner mental lives, and what happens to their psychology after that, right? Right. But there's a time, you know, when many of us anyway, we 
don't think of ourselves as part of the potentially precarious or downtrodden or underexploited class. I mean, I, I was just joking the other day. People were talking about how every, the gig economy has come for us all. You know, and oh my God, and my job is going to be replaced by an AI and this. And they're all complaining. And I said, first they came for the cab drivers. And I said <laughs> nothing, but I am not a cab driver. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. As if like, yeah, of course they were. But you didn't. You didn't. You you drove in your, you took your Uber. You said, this is fine. I don't want to think about the fact that I've just destroyed or assisted in the destruction of a gainful employment by using this gig app. And now, yeah, sure enough. That's what you get for hitting Amazon Prime all the time. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it just yeah, yeah. Comes yeah. back. It's there's karma to pay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there is a moment, like in people's lives, and I feel like we're there almost as a society now, where people are going, "Oh, this thing I've been participating in is actually going to affect." me, which is why it's sort of a really ripe time for your work and for, for, for work in economic hardship, because it's like, oh, you know, I'm either in it or about to experience economic hardship myself. And <laughs> it's time. <laughs> the sooner we deal with this, the better. Yeah. I mean, so for me, I started this with this bootstrap, this interest in the bootstrap narrative, because I had written Squeezed and I kept wondering why all the subjects of my book and many of the people I work with at EHRP who are financially stressed, which is the word I use rather than poor, to describe the multiplicity of what it means to be economically struggling. Sometimes you have trouble paying your rent and then the next month you may not, right? So it's not always consistent, financially stressed. So, you know, they're, they're being blamed, you know, by this kind of peanut gallery of uh, commenters and emailers. <laughs> people will be like, why did this person go to college? Why didn't they go to college? Why did they own their house? Why didn't they own their house? Right. And my, my favorite would be these terrible anhedonic letters that I'd get from people that would be like, we drove a truck. We didn't eat out for 30 years. <laughs> you know, like I've never been on a vacation. The people at your organization should live like I do, right? Like the people, the, right. the financially stressed writers I work with that somehow, again, talking about the blame, we had just talked about your mom who blamed herself on some level, you think potentially for her illness, yeah. but people bl blaming themselves entirely and being uh, having others who may themselves worry about their own financial state. And that's why they have to create a story where somebody's deserving, someone's undeserving to explain why they're still okay. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like protective. And it's like almost a yeah, protective storyline. It, yeah. it is though, because, you know, and going back to sort of the psychology of vulnerability that you're talking about. So someone on your block loses their job and loses their house. What's the defense mechanism is to go, oh, they must have done something to do to do that. Right. I mean, because otherwise, it means that could happen to me. So we start looking. Oh, what did they do? Right, like you're saying. Oh, well, well, they they, they got a five year arm mortgage. So, oh, idiots, that was it. Or look, yeah, he was working on a hedge fund. Well, we know hedge fund. That was in the tech. Oh, oh, they sent their kids to the. They didn't do college loans. Oh, you know. So you got to find the blame thing because otherwise, it's like they're coming. They're coming for you. But that's, you know, the, the bigger version of that is the Stasi knocks on their door, drags them out of the house, and you go, oh, well, yeah, I saw that guy had a subscription to a porn magazine. So <laughs> he must be, you know, because you don't want them to come to your door, right? Yeah. And there's even a theory uh, that was fabricated, developed in the 60s by Lerner uh, called the Just World Hypothesis. Have you heard of it? Hmm. No. So according to the Just World Hypothesis, people are likely to find victims deserving of their fate. And yeah. Melvin Lerner did this experiment where a woman was given shocks, but it was an actor given yeah. false shocks. And a group of students were watching you know, from behind the glass, and they kept imagining that this woman who was being given shocks had done something to deserve them. And that <sighs> he did this experiment over and over again, and he found it over different time periods. And so he came up with this theory called the just world hypothesis that would explain why some people imagine that they're deserving of prosperity and imagine that others are deserving of suffering. And part of it is protective, as we're saying. It's like, okay, if that person getting those shocks behind that glass did something wrong or was somehow morally fallible, then, then that, that will protect me from getting those shocks. 
Right. I mean, do you think of this, I mean, right now as, as an American thing, you know, I mean, you, you got Emerson and Thoreau and Horatio Alger and like Little House on the Prairie kind of, I mean, it's like, it feels like the, the Puritan American thing plus maybe theosophy, you know, think it, be it, get it, just click your heels together and, and you will have it. And that American understanding of the self-made man, the sort of, that is in, in my view, at least as I understand Europe, that's the ugly American, you know, where I think of Europeans is like, oh yes, we'll pay high taxes, but we'll have beautiful clean trains and, you know, good public schools and every waiter will have health insurance and yeah. we don't tip the waiter because he has a real job. It's dig a dignified human endeavor as opposed to an indication of, of failure or something. The thing that I, I think is, is, is funny about what you're saying, I'm just thinking about Baum, which I hadn't connected to Horatio Alger, but there is something about that early, late 19th, early 20th century, I guess, Gilded Age, right? Late industrial period, right? Urbanization, this imagined community of success, culture, right, that was on the rise and it was before the Depression. So I think that there, there might have been mass delusion about the possibility of that at that point that we can see in the literature, right? But one thing that I really liked doing when I was writing this was reading like counter literature, like, you know, personal memoirs and narratives like Agnes Smedley, who's like this totally fascinating figure who wrote an account is I think daughter of earth that was a, growing up in a mining community. And it's the opposite of Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's like the most grim, like nothing works and they're washing their laundry until their fingers are black. And, and that was honestly what it was like in a lot of pioneer pioneering communities. It wasn't this like prosperous mon pa on the upswing. But I just think that there's a lot of uh, struggle, even in that period, that wasn't always acknowledged in our literature, you know? Right. But there's so much, I guess, partly because then, not just the, the American myth of success, but the structure of American economics ended up so dependent on individual prosperity and individual success. You know, there's no real social safety. There's just, a, as you would call it, the social safety uh, uh, dystopia. Since that's not there, if you're on your own, if you don't do it on your own, you're, you're just fucked, basically. That everything about us becomes about increasing our kind of personal product. Are you going to be, a, are you a productive member of society, right? It's so much about our utilitarian value. It's why I talk about Mr. Rogers so much in, on this show, which, because Mr. Rogers told me when I was a kid, I'm okay just the way I am, right? <laughs> and I don't need to do anything, but everything gets applied towards the utilitarian value of the individual, which is back, you know, you were, you were mentioning when we first started talking about the, the mindfulness and wellness movement, which has always bothered me because it's always about, oh, don't worry, we're going to make you a better stockbroker, you know, or, and why is it the human resources departments that are putting in all this wellness technology? It's not because they care about our well-being. It's that they want us putting in an, another hour or two of high quality, you know, low error work. But I sort of loved when I was reading all the arguments for mindfulness that were like either internal in some of these um, companies or were reported on even, you know, by business reporters and the people, they'd be like, they'll do $3,000 more worth of like, um, you know, business if you give them a mindfulness seminar, you know, to explain why you should have these mindfulness classes. Also, you know about Amazon? No. Amazon were these kind of booths that Amazon uh, put in for their workers. A little soundproof meditation booths or something? Yeah, but it's kind yeah. of like, it's a little bit like <laughs> like a coffin <laughs> on its, you know, on its, on its you know, whatever, sarcophagi, I guess. That's a, but, um, but my daughter used to love that. When she was little, like, you get a, an appliance box, like the oven would come, and she would like live in that box for a month. She'd I don't think if you're working pillow. at Amazon, you know, and you're 50, right. you want to like crawl it. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't see how that would help anyone. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> right. But wellness, right? Wellness and well-being and all that, the, the words, again, into your word salad, they've been taken. You know, they've been taken away from us, our sense of actual well-being. And it's more about your readiness for good, resilient scrum work, you know, yeah. or whatever. 
I always thought it should be well, comma, being. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. good. See, this is good. The word salads are going to be great. But there's a lot of ways to pay money to things or, you know, better you give a whole bunch of money to the boys club or the girls club or a soup kitchen or a thing. But they're not looking at doing anything or paying anything that will challenge their own obscene accumulation of wealth. Right. And that's part of the problem. I mean, as with philanthropy per se, right? It's not a release valve for, well, in a lot of ways, it's a release valve for the wealthy <laughs> to, <laughs> so to, to keep them perpetuating their own cycle of aggregation and accumulation. Right. And maybe stave off yeah. the inevitable revolution. It's like, let's, oh, there's a lot of homeless. Let's build a housing project over there. <laughs> you know? I always refer to this thing. I can't, I don't know why I probably can't even mention him anymore, Slava Zizek, because didn't he become like a Trump or something? But Zizek <laughs> called this the obscene supplement, which is like right. the uh, the pressure that's released uh, from the community and the, the, the country uh, that permits social control to continue, right? So the obscene supplement lets off all this, diverts uh, all of this pain and revolutionary fervor. And so sometimes I think philanthropy functions as an obscene supplement. And the thing I write about in the book also is something I call shock benefactors. And I, right. like after shock capitalism, because the, I think the problem with there is you have people who give gifts that are really around their own name, right? And that is often have to be like name buildings and colleges or museums. And that it can seem impressive, but they, it really doesn't filter down enough. I mean, I don't know, but you know, Mackenzie Scott uh, has obviously been getting good counsel and is She's a, doing well. She flipped. Really, she flipped to the other side. Right? Really so cool. Most of these distributed people, giving, and yeah. also, also another thing I'm very serious about is disaster giving. In the sense, like, and maybe that sounds like shock benefactors, but it's not. Disaster giving is treating as if we're in a continuous disaster, and that I think one of the problems that we, you see a lot with philanthropy is they have very. I mean, I just know because I run a nonprofit economic hardship reporting project that some big donors have lots of bells and whistles and you have to you know jump through a lot of hoops to get the money and you have to say you're getting it for this and that and you have to you know show your bank balance basically yeah. they're like i say they're like a, a spouse looking at and i think what disaster giving would be sort of treating our current moment as you know we need this money we p people need this money especially in journalism and the media you know, we need to just have it. And we have, we, we, we at EHRP do have donors that are like this, that are just like, here, it's called general operating and there's just like right. money. I know it. that's what none of these dudes want to give those. Like in tech bro land where I spend too much of my time or at least too much of my, my worrying, they want to give like a hundred million dollars to the X prize moonshot, wonderful super duper project thing, all the money to one thing. And in a way, it's a continuation of the myth, right? That there's this one individual dude somewhere who has the idea that we're going to give him the money and then he'll be one of us, basically, you know, we're, we're going right. to find one. And that's the shock benefactor. That's the shock right. benefactor. Um, I like that phrase also, because it makes me think of like, Dickensian uncle that comes around and here, you know, here's a whole shitload of right. money. We're going to change your life, you know. But the, what some of the wealthy and powerful people could do, I mean, as you suggest, and I've been screaming about for a long time myself, is they could use some of their power to initiate systemic change. Simple stuff. And we've heard these things before, like the wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren was talking about, or, you know, what I've been, been yelling for, which is a reversal of the, you know, tax dividends and payroll low and tax capital gains high so that you're encouraging circulation of value rather than the extraction of money. And they don't seem difficult. They uh -uh. don't seem like difficult innovations. It's just, and even you get Warren Buffett and whoever else coming out and saying, you know, I pay more, less tax than my secretary and that should change. But then no one changes it. If we're going back to the bootstrap vision though, it's one right. of collective effort. It's one of mutual aids. It's one of all these kind of alternative community activity. And also, I think it's, an, it's a narrative change too. Throwing out this story of the self-made man and exposing it, the lie of it, when it's being told by like Joshua Hawley or Trump. I mean, it should be constantly myth-busting this, this lie. The problem, I think, the reason people don't try to counter the self-made lie is because they are still beguiled by it, yeah. I think. Holding out hope. 
holding out hope that maybe, I mean, the funny, the self-made thing, I, I was thinking back to ancient Rome and um, they used to do a lottery at the, at the Colosseum, at the big death matches where one slave that day, one enslaved person would get their freedom. Yeah. They would do a giant lottery and become a citizen. And somehow that little teeny valve created enough wiggle room that they all had hope that one day they would be the one enslaved person who made it out. You know, and I know we've still got the lottery today, but this idea, you know, that you just get your, you get your hand on the lowest rung of this ladder and you're going to make it up. I mean, and fewer and fewer people are making it up every day because we don't have unions. We don't have any of the mechanisms that really allowed people any sort of class mobility that, that they used to have. But the mechanism that we do have and the one that, that you and I are both really steadfastly attempting to promote is, uh, is mutual aid and community. Gosh, I mean, the examples you had of um, the one organization that was uh, basically raising money to buy food for people that those people actually wanted, that they would call up the people and say, what would you, what would you like? What groceries would you like us to buy for you? And how that, that even that modicum of autonomy had never been considered before by food aid people. Mm -hmm. I love that, you know, and, and, and these, I mean, this is what, you know, Marina Gorbis at Institute for the Future started this, you know, uh, and you should be a part of this thing, this um, equitable enterprise initiative, which is really all about how do we spread mutuality and mutual aid as sort of a new economic default rather than, than extraction growth, externalization and all that sort of stuff. But mutual aid, as you pointed out, and, and she's on the, the board of it and she's been, been on, uh, uh, on Team Human, um, um, Jessica uh, Gordon-Nembhard and her terrific book, Collective Courage, where she looks back at really the, the African-American experience with mutual aid. They were doing it since the 1700s. Yeah. And that's the thing that I loved about the historical parts of uh, my book because I was like, mm. I loved looking at Darwin and seeing how Darwin prefigured Kropotkin in his accounts of mutualism. And yeah. so, and you know, right. that it, it's not just survival of the fittest, and also that there was this incredible counter history of black mutual aids throughout the 19th and 20th century. And that it's often these kind of like groups that are excluded from like hegemonic power, right? That mm -hmm. reach for the collective solutions that will save us all. Yes, this social understanding of Darwinism was the whole premise of Team Human that you know that the that the libertarians have have co-opted Darwin as some justification for an Ayn Rand individual competitive nightmare when you actually read the Darwin and 80 90% of it is marveling at how species cooperate and collaborate for mutual survival. And you also, you know, as I do, you also quote Secret Life of Trees, you know, all the research about how the trees are not like we were taught in school. They're not crowding each other out for sunlight. They're sharing nutrients through a network of mycelia under the ground. So you don't even, the fascists no longer even have nature as their metaphor mm -hmm. for, you know, so if you don't have nature, which is all they were relying on, Socialists already had history, which we relied on. So now we have both history and nature. And I love that you went back to Kropotkin. I was like, I'd forgotten. Sorry, anyone who's like important. I'd forgotten all about him. I always kept talking about Marx. And then you wrote about Kropotkin. Then I looked and I was like, this dude was onto so much. He was oh my of God. That, that moment in history. Why that, is there not so, a Kropotkin biopic? Or a Kropotkin club. Doug, why don't we write the Kropotkin <laughs> Right. We got to no, think I'm of actually, a better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, I would, we could do it. We yeah, got to yeah, call yeah. it something other yeah. than Kropotkin, right? We got to take it. <laughs> Krop. 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 <laughs> well, his hot, name. Hot. We, hot. No, no, we'll find not. out what his what was his first name. Pietra. At, Pietra. Yeah. That's it, good. Pietra. That's right. P. Pietra. I think just that's mutual would be the title. Yeah. yeah. Mutual. But his life sound was incredible. And like Oscar Wilde described him as like the, the most incredible and beautiful. He's like, This is the life I wish I had lived. <laughs> like Oscar Wilde. Kropot whatever. That's like just Kropotkin was very cool. Very cool. Oh, yeah. He's like friends with the czar. And then he, you know, put his body and mind at total risk uh, to fight against imperialism and for mutual aid. He's a pretty yeah. amazing guy. Yeah. He wasn't one of those Stalinists cutting people's heads off. He was actually, he, he understood mutual aid. I mean, it was a really, it's such a simple idea. It's simpler than the self-made man. 
that, oh, we we help each other. You know, you buy brownies for someone when they move into the neighborhood. And then- Sweet. Because, <laughs> Doug, because you're so smart here. That's exactly what I'm always thinking when I'm looking at this. I'm like, the self-made man is like a Rube Goldberg apparatus. Yes. It's so, it doesn't make any sense. It's like the bootstraps. Like, yeah. there's an illogic to all these myths. Whereas- mutualism we have our stress systems that need to be regulated by one another we have uh trees and you know whatever polyps mm-hmm. <laughs> you know milkweed and like uh monarch butterflies right they're all understand mutualism like how did why did these these illogical stories win out you know i think you're not gonna like this one but i think it's a problem of Western language being so subject-object oriented that it tends toward the linear. You said this last time and I loved it. I think it is, though, that mutual aid requires a circular understanding of the world. What goes around comes around. The self-made man is a unidirectional plot. It's that Aristotelian crisis climax Mm -hmm. sleep you know, it, it's that. Well, so it's if like, it's what you're saying is it's like, yeah, it's, there's a protagonist and it's, it has telos, right? That's like, whereas right. like mutualism has a dyad, but you could yes. say that we could have a dyadic form of rescue and the, to the, I guess the community can't be dramatized as easily, right? Or something? I guess not, you know, and it depends yeah. how dire things are. It's like if the Titanic is going down, every man for himself, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Who's going to make it? If you believe that the Titanic can be kept afloat, then you work as a team toward bailing and fixing and doing what you heave, heave, men, heave, you know, it becomes, uh, it becomes teamwork. It, it's, it's funny, but right. What seems more, what seems simpler? Eric Foreman's cab driver owned ride sharing app or Uber where you have investors selling to shareholders running administrators extracting value from people and changing laws in order to be able to do this it's like oh my god uber is so much less efficient so convoluted compared to you know who better to own the ride sharing app than the drivers do you think this is because we're cob- <laughs> we're cobblers um grand- grandchildren that we're sort of yeah, seriously, we're. With, I will tell you, we're you with know, the uh, like we're with the stuff of the world a little of it. You just reminded me. I met this not recently, maybe ten years ago. There was a guy who made like a ton of money who I knew from the old New York digital days, and he made big money on a couple of startups. And he did some fun things. I remember he bought like twenty thousand dollars worth of old video machines and had a party where we all got to put them together and play. He did fun things, and he took me to lunch at the Four Seasons Hotel at South by Southwest in like 2015. And I'm looking at him and all his money and he said, and he goes, Doug, you know, the reason why you didn't succeed, that's what he said. That was the premise. The reason why you didn't succeed is that you have a shtetl mentality. You do your work and get paid for the work, then do more work and get paid for that work. The way to get rich is to go one level above that and have other people do the work so that you can then really basically do an infinite amount of work because all these other people are doing the actual labor. You've got to go up. So you're not a book writer. You supervise people who are writing books or you're publishing or that. And he says, unless you get out of that shtetl mentality, you'll never make anything of yourself. And it was odd. And then you're like, you're like, I like see myself as shtetl fabulous. <laughs> I know. I did. I thought about it for a I'm while. Shtetl fabulous. <laughs> I am. You and, are. You know, and, and it's closer to strapping my own boot if I'm writing my own books and creating my own value. Book rather strapping. Than book strapping. Book strapping. Thank you very much. <laughs> book strapping. But it was odd. But it was exactly that. So the shtetl mentality is general electric before jack welch mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right general electric making washing machines versus jack welch lending money to people to buy washing machines mm-hmm. you know the, the person who actually does the work is the patsy in our economy i completely agree 
that that that's the that's the story. That's the dark secret of the story. And it shouldn't be because right because work, you know, by progressive levels of anti-Marxist extraction and and abstraction, the worker has moved increasingly towards gig, right? Yeah. So the needless complexity is is actually part of the mystification that is you know shrouding exploitation. Right. Right. And that's why the things that you talk about at the end of your friggin' book, things like participatory budgeting. Yeah. Which I know is, is more is more governmenty, but it could also be corporate just as easily, right? Yeah. Participatory budgeting. And people are like, oh, that's bespoke. And you're like, well, no, hell not if it's like 428 cities, you know? Or right. more if it's like, you know, multiple it's every community had that. And I think that's why we have to have this kind of disaster mentality in our philanthropy and in our uh, social construction. Like, I think we need to, instead of just having, waiting for disaster to befall us and then having the equivalent of UBI, you know, kind of a lot of the t- tax giveaway, uh, you know, tax, uh, a lot of the economic giveaways during the pandemic function like UBI, right? We need it now, or we need, um, like I was saying about philanthropy, we need to have a disaster giving mentality around that too, where it's like less, fewer checks and balances. Um, around philanthropy, fewer t- like not trickle down philanthropy, which is like you give to big organization that then gives it to small, it gives it smaller. It's like the nesting dolls, and then the grassroots organizations never get anything, or they get something mm. that's so policed and so hierarchized. And for mutual aid, right, all these mutual aids jump cropped up during the pandemic, but it, right now it's it they're so disparate, and it's hard to tell which ones actually exist still. It's like the record keeping around them is not so strong. And and I would love there to be a more formalized mutual aid infrastructure, you know? I mean, you talk about the pandemic, though, and the, the lessons of the pandemic. And I'm wondering, what were the lessons that people actually got? Did they get the lesson, oh, I'm going to, you know, start taking care of people? Or did they get the lesson, I'm glad I put an office on the back of my... <laughs> you know, uh, Hampton's house so that I could, <laughs> you know, great. Do I, I'm glad I got to explore the Adirondacks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? I'm glad, right? I, I'm glad I, I did a fact finding mission for my second country home. <laughs> right? Exactly. Which I'm now yeah. going to, I'm going to get with Navy SEALs. Right. Yeah. I think that did happen to a discouraging degree. I, I also think employers <laughs> understood that they could keep their upper middle class employees by making work remote and not paying them more. So like remote work Mm. is something of a tool. And I think, I mean, definitely some of the lessons were wrong, which is part of why we can't have this kind of silence around it. I feel like people are like, it's like in some ways it's like just the hatred of what we had to go through has made us try to forget it as quickly as possible. Whereas everything positive that came out of it is also being erased very quickly. And that seems to me a problem. So all that would be left are like your survival of the richest, like their homes, you know, or their, <laughs> their investments, the incredible profits they made from them. But that's what, that's what, that's the Ozymandias. That's like what lives, you know, and then all the mutualism and the, the respect for frontline work has all gone away. It kind of has now. Oh, there's those Amazon guys in their little vans again, whatever. You know, I, I, I wonder, you know, and, and all they need I, I is do... Amazon. All they need. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. A little Amazon booths along their routes, along their routes, so they can stop and, and refresh and get some wellness so they can get back on the road again. Exactly. I mean, what, what are the best, most hopeful examples you're seeing right now of, of mutual aid and, and how can other people really model them? Well, I mean, I saw this most recently, this incredible flowering of, I called it the black turtle net workers revolution uh, or worker black, black turtleneck workers uprising. It was kind of intelligentsia jobs that were terribly paid, you know, like adjunct labor or um, museum workers, people at my own publisher, HarperCollins, who, who were organizing. And that's been really hopeful for a number of reasons to me. It's, it's that, people, this middle precariat that I wrote about in my last book, seeing themselves as political subjects, A, B, joining up with uh, broader movements of workers, B, and C, like a recognition of interclass solidarity for the world to see, you know, finally. So that seemed very helpful to me. I mean, the funny thing is, it's like, sometimes it feels like, 
Like we need that same individual comes and bootstraps an or like I'm thinking like there are these heroes like Majora Carter or the girl from the the Greta you know that we need like like I'm waiting in my town for one of those super people to build a participatory organization for the rest of us well it's also like a lot of them are defrocked I mean they they're right. exposed right like I don't want, you know like what you just mentioned which makes things brittle right and it yeah. makes your organization brittle if it's if it's a charismatic leader that pulls it together i mean are you seeing like co-ops and groups forge without that charismatic leader person like just groups of people regular people getting together well the worker co-ops that we profiled it was i, I did it for the book but also for this project with six photographers across the country and yeah, I mean, at the center of a lot of them, there'd be just like a farmer uh, who was a cooperative farmer, or there'd be someone who owned an auto shop and or wanted to start an auto shop and thought, oh, let's make this like a, uh, in that case, it was just a cooperative, not a workers' co-op. Yeah, I'm, the worker co-op, I guess you're thinking of Eric Foreman, but I think some of the others, they they, they seem a lot less, parse, again, because they're small scale right. and whoever's starting them has to actually work there. So like it's harder to ha- be like this kind of ideational figure if you're like slogging away with the rest of the workers. Yeah. Which is kind right. of good in a way. I mean, in a way, like that's part of what, I guess let's make an argument for worker co-ops. That's part of what makes worker co-ops seem more potentially lateral and, you know, less brittle because you have to participate and continue to participate to claim a stake in them. Right. I mean, that's the, sort of the one hope I have against authoritarianism is, you know, when you've got a single charismatic leader on whom the whole thing is based, something happens to that leader and the whole thing crashes, you know, thank God, right? <laughs> they don't have that. They don't have their their mythical figure anymore. But another one of these things that I'm I'm looking at, and then for me, it's almost like just a fantasy was when you were describing participatory budgeting as a phenomenon. And I was reading it in the book and thinking, is this does this does this really happen? Right. So I was hoping you could explain how participatory budgeting works. And then really more importantly, how how could I just go to my town, my mayor, and say, look, I do this? I mean, how does that happen? Participatory bu- budgeting, it's also called PB. It's where citizens take part in their very local governments, you know, and they often organize around neighborhood concerns. Like they want more park space or they want a cutaway for disabled residents so they can uh, cross the street more easily. They want to have a say in how government money is spent. And right now it's like the last count was 150 people were taking part, 150,000 people were taking part in it. But I think the numbers are probably a lot higher than that, actually. Uh, I mean, there's an estimated 436 PBs that have started around the country. And it's, yeah, it's New York. And that's the one that I engage with. But it's also places like Boston or Vallejo or um, Nashville. And I think part of the excitement around it or the energy was around police budgets, right? Because huge amounts of local gov- you know, government's budgets are police budgets. And for instance, in Seattle, they organized to, to try to change where the local government was putting its money to put less into the cops. So that that gave it a kind of frisson that it might not have had normally. <laughs> uh, in the end, I think their budget was cut by 18%. And then they put money into a fund that was distributed to social services. This is uh, par- partly due to the pressure of this participatory budgeting group. Again, I don't really know what happened to that fund, right? They <laughs> could have been kind of circular. And, um, but you know, that's hopeful. That's people learning civics, often really ordinary people, not like your so regular social activists, you know, moms, dads. Yeah. Because I'm thinking it could, if people might rise to the occasion. I mean, in my town, there are these huge knockdown, I mean, it's a tiny town, it's like 5,000 people, but there are fights over, you know, should we make the football field uh, artificial turf or real grass, right? Should we let them build this over here or not? Should we spend the money to fix our water tower or let it go? And it's like people become enemies for life on these kind of things. And it's mm-hmm. usually because there's a board that makes these decisions and they try to get some 
feedback at town meetings. You know, people get up and yell into a microphone and then they make a decision and then half the people are mad. And I'm thinking, wow, participatory budgeting. What if I bring it to my mayor and the board and say, why don't we try this? I mean, because I'm thinking that people who are sort of arguing on Facebook in ridiculous polarized ways. If they were actually participating, they saw the pot of money, they see what's possible and what's not, they can, they'll feel, not only feel empowered, but they may rise to the occasion and act less like stubborn assholes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's, (laughs) it's like a feedback loop, you know, uh, again, with the, what we were talking about earlier with nature, you know, and our natural processes, like to have our needs and our wants mirrored by others, right? And like to not just be experiencing them alone. So I think that that's what's partially hopeful about them to see others seeing your needs, to see others like you having those needs, to articulate them in a public space, you know, and then to see some effect. And in some ways, and I know we blame digital for a lot of the problems and the disconnections and what happened to the economy and gig work and all that. But on some ways, I've been hoping that these kinds of ideas would not only kind of become more typical of the digital media environment, but they're in some ways, they're characteristic of what those of us in the early days thought of yeah. as the digital media environment. Like, P- like, P- kinda- like PDF or whatever, like, you know, personal democracy forum. Right. And- they're sort of distributed, yeah. the distributed sensibility of the internet, that it's not a top down TV radio dictatorship, but it's this participatory peer to peer network Yeah, like Rhizome and even Haptic and it's like, you know, whatever, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But it was. And not to be yeah. silly, it's, it's not, to, not to, I mean, I, I like to laugh at us about it, but, but there's something real. There's something, it's a, maybe that's finally come to bear that it wasn't the digital tools themselves so much as this digital sensibility that we're going to do in a very local face-to-face peer-to-peer way. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, Trevor, right. Who does platform. Trevor co-op- Schultz. Yeah. Does platform cooperatism. So he'd be thinking that this is going to happen uh, indeed online or it is happening that's just he's arguing that and but any particular example of a cooperative that use some method that we like that may have failed doesn't negate mutuality you know what mm-hmm. i mean you're going to find many examples oh the co-op failed oh look at those kibbutzes that turned into cults or look yeah you can look at all that but right but look at the corporations that turned into extractive exploitative you know smog spewing nightmares too. So uh, <laughs> there's See, enough. This is another great one. That's another great inversion. You're like something failing, at least as part of the post growth mindset, something succeeding right. and eroding is pure evil growth mindset. So better to succeed and fail and at small scale exactly. to succeed and thrive it, like maliciously big, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. In a scorched earth nightmare yeah. Of, yeah. of death. I love that book, Post Growth. Did you read that? Yeah, yeah. That's the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of arguing about that since uh, I guess I did Life Inc. back when, you know. I and like Post Growth not just yeah. for companies, but also for so many things in life. I feel like that's like the growth is sort of a problem. <laughs> It is. And it yeah. goes back to your original idea of that self-made yeah. man. We're going to, if you're going to get there and do this and that, it's like, where are you going? What are you doing? What's wrong? What, what's the problem right now? You know, that you're trying to solve with yeah, your, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with your empire. <laughs> yeah. Bigger than you're bigger than life. And I think some of the reasons I told these stories, right. About Horatio Alger and these early, early, you know, whatever version first version of the self-made man is that there is often like a lot of falsehoods at the center of their biographies that fascinated me like that that Mm. the self-made man narrative was a way of becoming big to sort of paper over some of the fracture lines in their own story i know and you tell some great ones and then of course there's the modern ones where you know elon musk and and donald trump did not start out as poor kids on the you know streets yeah, yeah, of yeah, the lower yeah. east side <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> well and they're they all, had and a good head start yeah and it's part of and like the the self-made man and the kind of the huckster or the fabricator are connected right right that if you're if you're rooted in a family like you know my my line is if you think you're self-made call your mother yeah 
There you go. Who taught? <laughs> right. Who toilet trained you too? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But they got that. Right. Exactly. It's the fake it till you make it goes to kind of this prosperity gospel, Norman Vincent Peale, mm-hmm. think and grow rich and wonderful and think it, be it, have it or the secret. And it's, it's a nice idea that you can just, and, and I love like young girls manifesting on TikTok, the future they want, but that's very different, right? To envision what you want to see and to have some measure of faith in your own ability to bring about some sort of happiness than this myth that you can go it alone and make it because all you're really going to do is go it alone and break it really, you know, (laughs) break other people's lives and externalize harm. And you're just climbing to the top of a heap of human bodies, not, you know, the top of anything real. I was going to ask about all your Silicon Valley travels. Like, do you encounter the rise and grind mindset still? Or are they? Oh, yes. A startup mentality. You know, it was even when when Elon tried to bring it back when he took over Twitter and then said, "Okay, everybody's going to have to work really hard. I'm going to want you there all night and all that. That's partly like we're going to. All right. We're going to go into it. And it's like that doesn't really I could see a, a week or two sprint for something really important. But come on, life is yeah. short. You don't yeah. don't don't do this to yourself, you know, and there's real work to be done. There's actual that you could if you want to work all day and all night. There's like, <laughs> yeah, fix yeah, the yeah, topsoil, yeah. you know, help, yeah, 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 yeah. starving. You could, I, I'll put you to work, you know, <laughs> if that's what you want, you know, <laughs> very funny. Yeah. There's just no exit strategy for you at the end. You know, you're not going to invest, <laughs> you're going to invest your options, right? You're going to invest real options, right? So you're going to get actual uh, navigational room, some options for the, for a future that looks like something other than an IPO. Imagine that. Oh my gosh. Well, Alyssa Quartz, thank you so much for everything, for being you, for uh, being a, a freelance teacher and organizer. Bye, Doug. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Alyssa Court. Her new book, Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, is available everywhere books are sold. You can find out more about Alyssa at alyssacourt.com or you can find out about the Economic Hardship Reporting Project at economichardship.org. See our show notes for links to the other authors and projects we spoke about in our conversation. Or go to teamhuman.fm to find out more about Alyssa and all of our guests and to become a subscribing member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our opening theme is from Fugazi, and the music underneath me now is from Mike Watt on bass. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. <laughs>